Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. On today's episode, we're sharing Q&As from screenings of two films that are hitting theaters this weekend. First, you'll hear from the director of The Fits, a coming-of-age drama about an 11-year-old boxer who becomes fascinated with a dance troupe that practices at her gym. After that, we'll share a conversation with the filmmakers behind The Witness, a documentary about the infamous Kitty Genovese murder, as seen through the eyes of the victim's brother, who remains haunted by it. The Fitz had its New York premiere in New Directors New Films, our annual festival of new discoveries co-presented with the Museum of Modern Art. Violet Luca of Film Comment Magazine called it a beautifully constructed film, by turns deeply poignant and laugh-out-loud funny. During the festival, director Anna Rose Holmer, actress Alexis Nabli, producer Lisa Kiroff, cinematographer Paul Yee, and editor Celia Davis joined us for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. Okay, let's, uh, I'm going to start with one question and then I think we're going to have mics um, for you if you have some questions. Um, But let's start, since Alexis is here, who plays BZ so wonderfully, um, talk about your casting, how you found Alexis, but also the whole group of, of dancers. Yeah, uh, so one of the original seeds of the film was that we wanted to cast all of the girls in the film from the same dance team. Um, we didn't know what type of dance we were going to find, um, but the first time I saw the Q Kids was on YouTube. Um, and about 15 seconds into the video, I paused, I called Lisa, and I was like, it's drill. And there's this team in Cincinnati called the Q Kids, and I, I am something electric happened when I saw them. And so I called uh, their coach, uh, Miss Quisi, Marquisia Jones-Woods, and kind of pitched the project. It was very early. We didn't have a full script yet. Um, and they were the only team we formally asked. And so the Q Kids has a couple hundred girls in circulation. Um, they're a community organization in the West End in Cincinnati. And they, they practice at Lincoln Center, which is the other Lincoln Center in Cincinnati. Just a coincidence. Um, <laughs> and, uh, which is where we shot about 95% of the film. So our, we originally opened up casting just to the Q kids. Um, and we were hoping we would find all the leads. We were open to casting Tony's character from outside of the team, but really wanted all the other uh, parts to be cast from within the group. And day one of casting, I saw... Royalty was like the eighth girl I saw, and Royalty plays Tony. Royalty Hightower plays Tony, uh, and Alexis I also saw on day one, and Alexis was one of the very few people who walked in the room, and I was like, I just met BZ. Like I, our audition session was so fun. We improv together. I couldn't even like keep a straight face. Like she was so entertaining and full of life and this like positive spirit, which is really such an important aspect of the film is that friendship and how non-judgmental busy is the entire film and i just i fell in love and the scary thing was that both uh, alexis and royalty were nine and when they auditioned and i was not prepared <laughs> really to work with two nine-year-olds i thought we were going to get a little older girls who looked younger um but their chemistry was just amazing and I just felt like they were collaborators and they were they wanted so much to be part of it and 
I, I'm so grateful that they <laughs> that they came on board. So yeah. So did you feel like you were a collaborator, Alexis? And did you feel that same thing the first day you went and auditioned? Yes. And so tell me how, a bit how it was like, this was the first film you ever made, I'm going to guess, am I correct? Yes. Okay. So how was it, were you on set every day? And did you have rehearsals? Tell us a little bit about what it was like for you to rehearse and, and just to act in a film. For me, it was fun and sometimes tiring because we'll have to like work long days to get it right and um, I liked it, it very much. Maybe we'll be seeing more of her. That's uh, <laughs> possible. Now, all of you are co-writers, I believe, except for Paul, who just did the beautiful cinematography, I believe. Um, Different type of writing. Yes. And tell us, it's interesting, I, I think you wound up in Cincinnati because that's where you found the dancers. Um, how did this, this script come together of three of you working on it together? Uh, the seed of the film um, came about really while I was producing a film called Ballet 422 that was directed by Jody Lee Leips and I co-produced with uh, Ellen Barr. And it, it examines the choreographic process at New York City Ballet. And I had the privilege of being in the room with a great young choreographer working with dancers. And there's this very wordless exchange that happens between dancer and choreographer, uh, this kind of body mirroring that happens. Uh, and I was really fascinated by how dance was translated from body to body to body. And it was really, they could not use words. Sometimes it was he had to show them and they would repeat it with their bodies and it changed and it shifted. And I kind of was fascinated by this idea and at the same time, I saw some cell phone videos of girls, teenage girls, um, teaching themselves how to pass out. So they would like hyperventilate and then stand up really quickly and pass out. And I was like, oh, they're learning choreography. They're mirroring each other. And this idea just like clicked. That was like adolescence as this awkward, terrible dance that we all have to go through. Um, and we'd all like I've been really fascinated with the idea of a contagion or hysterics. So that's where it started. And then we pitched it to the Venice Biennale College, um, which is a micro-budget, micro-initiative for first, second-time filmmakers. And all of these key collaborators came on to the film before the script existed, which I think is a huge, um, like I just am so grateful for them because they sculpted it from the very beginning. And then the three of us, Celia, Lisa and I, workshopped, we're all like very visual storytellers. Do you guys want to talk about it? The writing process? There are mics, there are mics there in front of you. Uh, Whatever. What you the writing process. Oh yeah, you were saying visual storytellers. Yeah, uh, so I think we started, uh, we started with a, a treatment um, and then from there we wrote a formal script and you know, things just kept changing, but we worked together to kind of bounce ideas off of one another. Uh, and Anna kind of mostly did the, the writing, uh, the script work. And yeah, I feel like that was our process. Lisa, do you want to say more? Yeah, we, uh, I mean, we came up with the the characters and, and the outline all together and, and um, created the story and then tore it apart and then put it back together over and over again until we didn't have any time left and we had to make the movie. Um, 
I think also like none of us are trained or come from a background of screenwriting. So that, that process was more comfortable done in a room, like vocally out loud for us as writers. We resisted very heavily the page work, uh, which we did, but the like beautiful thing was the kind of sessions that we would have like crying and screaming and whatever. <laughs> But also, like, the dialogue, we, um, you know, we wrote it out, but we knew we weren't teenage girls, and, like, uh, so we knew that would change, and so we kind of kept it loose. We, we would do our, like, 30-year-old version of these conversations, but mm -hmm. we knew it would kind of go away once Anna was on set. Yeah, Alexis, do you want to talk about your writing process for your lines? Yeah. Some of them was a little hard, and I changed, like, one or two parts, mm -hmm. And I liked when I was writing it because if I got to speak what I would normally say, it was fine. So, yeah, so you got to say to them, I wouldn't say this, or a girl my age wouldn't say this, and you got to give yeah. them what you thought well, it worked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, let's see if we have any questions here. Can you hear me? We can. Thank okay. you. Um, Alexis spoke to this, but I'd like to know from Alexis's point of view and from the writer's point of view, how your interaction shaped the film. I know you came in with a, like a, what you, an idea, but how did the interaction with the young people shape the, the actual film? I'll go first. <laughs> um, well, we came in with a full, full draft, a full script, a traditional full script. Uh, we just, we didn't treat it, the script, like some God-given object. We were, we really wanted the performers to consider themselves authors and agents in the film alongside of us. And that, that didn't just go to the philosophy with working with the kids, but all of our collaborators. It was really important that when they spoke about the film, they could say, this is my film. And that was just our philosophy as as filmmakers. Um, but I lived on location for nine weeks and um, we did a lot of different types of workshop depending on who the actor was, but the West End community and the Q Kids sisterhood in general uh, are so integral into the film that you see on screen and their collaboration, support, and generosity uh, just blew me away. It was. It was such a loving, respectful environment to create a film in, and I'm so grateful that they embraced our idea and wanted to make this film alongside with us. I don't know, what was it like to, uh, to kind of those early phases, the rehearsals and stuff like that? What was that process like before we started shooting? Um, it was very easy because we were just practicing them until I got them right and I knew what I was saying and I did it all right. So it was easy. And when I was saying my lines, uh, when, before we had started, I said, no, this is not what I'll say, or, mm. <laughs> and then I was like, can I change that or sign? And she said, yeah. And we, we also worked with their head coaches, Mariah and Tria Jones, mm -hmm. um, who are choreographers. So they were, they, we worked to incorporate the narrative of the film very heavily in the drill sequences that you see. And um, 
So I think it was really great because they know their dancers really well. They know the strengths of all those girls as physical performers, um, which is a whole different aspect. Um, so they were on set every day. We designed that drill routine um, and stand battles, the parade. So a lot of rehearsal was also dance, which is these girls are elite dancers. They compete nationally. Uh, they're like champions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they practice three hours a day doing dance regardless. So it was fun to, to be part of that process, knowing that that dance was gonna be on screen. Okay, let's see. Right here, we have someone. And we could probably hear you, but let's use the mic anyway, thanks. Yeah, I, uh, I thought it was really interesting that, that the film seemed to be very close to like, like Tony and like Beezy's point of view. And we only heard like sort of bits and pieces of what was being said sort of in the background uh, or off to the sides or on TV. Um, and there were hard, the adults had almost no presence in this at all. We never saw anybody at home. It was all exclusively seemed to be at the rec center or out on the grounds. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering like what was, I mean, I thought that worked really well. And I'm just wondering what, what your ideas were about you know, that approach. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, we, that approach was pretty inherent from the beginning because thinking back, being a middle school student, um, in order for legs to have power and the power that she has over these group of girls, you have to remove adults because she has to be the top of the pyramid. And so as soon as you have an adult explaining anything, you, you cut off the head of the the beast. So in order to maintain that power structure, all the adults needed to disappear. And um, I think that both Paul's work on set about really making sure that our point of view cinemagraphically was with Tony every step of the way. And then later Celia in the edit room, you know, having clear decisions, anytime we deviated from that, it, it went, it went away. Um, and it was also really important for me, like, the community center was such a beautiful building and had so much power as a space. Um, it felt like home. It felt like a version of home. So like the laundry room is, is home for Tony and Jermaine. So we treated that space like that. We wanted, um, you know, that kind of romantic gauzy light. Like we, we really focused on identifying the spaces that we were using uh, thematically as home spaces. Like, you know, the overpass is Tony's bedroom. Like there are, we, we really conceptualized it as utilizing this space. Um, because when you think back, those are the key moments. It's not the adults. Sorry, mom and dad, they're in the audience. But you know, it's not, it's not the adults. Those, those were not the formative moments. It was with your peers and we needed to protect that, so yeah. Um, and, and let's talk about uh, shooting and POV and the cinematography a little bit more. Um, aside from what you're talking about, there are also these moments you're shooting dancers, and that, I'm sure, has its own set of, of challenges. And then there's some wonderful, wonderful long shots of just the gym, and, and where there's one where Beezy is just, just by herself, sort of dancing across the floor, another where she's following Tony, and other, other things uh, in, in the empty swimming pool, I think, and these kinds of very um, solitary, but long shots. Talk about, you know, how you decide why you have these scenes and how you're going to shoot them. Um, hello? Okay. Uh, well, 
I don't know, I guess we knew that we were gonna be limited to just being in the community center. So we spent a lot of time just looking at the spaces and just seeing where the light fell during certain times of day. So sometimes we were almost limited by the time of day that we had to shoot and uh, and because of that, we'd be like, well, we have to shoot a scene. Like, we can't shoot a scene outside because it's not dusk, you know, and we wrote it here, but we have to move it somewhere else. So, I don't know, that's like weirdly specific, but that scene that you're talking about um, in the basketball gym was sort of like a last minute audible for us. Like, we didn't plan on shooting that there at all. Um, so One a of lot my of, favorite like, shots in the film. <laughs> um, but we did, we did plan things. Uh, <laughs> But a lot of uh, like creative decisions we made came from limitations, you know? And I think, um, you know, even the limitation of removing adults, um, just so many limit, like keeping in one location, you know, internalizing everything to Tony's world. Um, we did make one, like, we, we also like realized that we were creating rules as we were going. Like day three, we were like, that's not, that doesn't fall into our rule set. We hadn't realized that we had made rules, but one of them was like with the architecture, the, the building is definitely a character in the film. So we did no, uh, we did no tilting at all. It's, it's all balanced. So if we wanted to have more headroom, you would not tilt up, you boom up. So we always were trying to keep everything square so that, the, that in the few moments where we augment and like you have that extreme high angle shot or like that we could use those breaking of the rules to kind of emphasize beats. Um, and that only works if you're very consistent and clear and creative vocabulary. And that was something that was very natural that we, we lived in that space. Yeah, you like, know, and it wasn't really something we discussed ever. It was just the thing where we'd set up the camera and be like, oh, this is like, there's so many lines here that this looks weird unless the camera's like straight on. And so, Eventually, sometimes when Anna would be like, I need a little more headroom, instead of just tilting it up a hair, we just boom up the camera just slightly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I think, how those weird limitations that you have end up informing all your decisions down the line. It is some of the best stuff. That's how they, uh, right here, that's a question. We're gonna try to bring the mic over to you. It's coming right in two seconds. There it is. Understand the arc of the story, or is this a, is it beautiful? Is this a recreation of a new wave film, or are we supposed to understand the arc of the story? Ah, um, that's interesting. I here, I'll go at it this way. I love transcendental cinema. is is a big inspiration on me. Like uh, Robert Bresant is a is a big voice that I have looked towards uh, to inform my decisions. Um, I see a pretty clear arc in this film, uh, and I'll, but it's not happening in a clear plot device or dialogue driven format. It's happening in movement. Uh, for example, the push broom scene is one of my favorite scenes in the film, and you could examine that scene purely on what they're saying. But for me, that scene is about BZ's physical spirit as a play, as a player, as a jester, as a clown, inviting Tony's character to break routine 
and join her. And that's the entry point into the whole kind of romance between Beezy and Tony's character. She has to go at her, go at her physically until she stops sweeping and joins in the play. And that's the first point where, you know, Tony's able to access this inner voice as a dancer. You see her on the bridge in the next, because she's started to understand the relationship between physical joy and the joy of dance. Like, it's really hard to say, like, that's a point in a three-act mm-hmm. structure, but for us, that's, that's the type of storytelling that we were trying to access uh, and really put it in a really physical, um, movement-based exploration of adolescence from a singular girl's perspective. And also, I think there, there are some things that we might think, you know, for instance, when they, they think there's something in the water, and, and then in the end they say, well, there's nothing in the water, you, if this were like sort of a straight narrative, you go, ah, then it's something else, and, and you go, that would become a whole other subset, but it's not really about that. If it might be the water is just a very small part of why these girls are having the fits, if you will. Yeah, I think, you know, the end sequence of the film for us is we tried to say, like, you are really seeing this from Tony's perspective. This is Tony's uh, way of entering into this. So the fantasy is her fantasy. And then you can look back at the whole film and say, well, we've been accessing it from a 10-year-old's perspective the whole time. So we wanted to keep everything um, open in terms of the kind of literal consequences of the fits. Like, we were dealing with them allegorically, so. Okay, let's see. Anybody in the back? Oh, no, but there's somebody right down here. And actually, we probably can hear you, but it's it's nice being able to speak into the microphone and I don't have to interpret what you said, just what you said. Uh, you mentioned that it was developed at the Venice College. Uh, that, I know that it's like over one year with very little money, but can you talk about it in uh, terms of the challenges and how you guys went about it? Oh, yes. Uh, from the very first workshop of the Biennale to our premiere in Venice, it was about 10 and a half months. So really, uh, timing was our biggest challenge, especially creatively. Um, it was an opportunity for, you know, I think Anna and us to, to make decisions uh, and not question them too much and sort of just trust the process. And uh, luckily that paid off, but uh, it was definitely sort of a, a challenge to feel like we were ready to go into production, like we were ready to call it a picture lock. Um, and then, you know, it's, it was made by a grant, um, which is not very much money. It's a micro budget uh, and micro timeline uh, situation. So uh, budget was also a challenge uh, in terms of uh, going into production and trusting that the West End of Cincinnati will give us everything that we need and um, and finding, you know, we hired half the crew from Cincinnati that we didn't know. and and they all ended up being amazing collaborators with us. Um, so those were just a few of the challenges that we faced. And then, you know, serendipitously, we found the right team and went to the, an amazing community and, and, uh, and we made our deadline. <laughs> How did you, did you have to submit? Did they invite you to submit? Uh, yeah, they have an open submission process. 
they're currently in their fourth cycle. We were part of the third. Um, and we submitted uh, treatment and a tumbler because I'm, I'm a big tumbler user. Um, and a lot of what I was citing was choreography. So, um, and then from that, we were selected for a group of 12 finalists. We were the American delegates. Uh, you have a development workshop and that culminates in a live pitch at the Biennale, um, which like European filmmakers are like, do every day because that's how it's like pitching is how you get government money in Europe um, but for us it was a new thing and uh, and then from the 12 filmmakers you all submit a full draft and they select three to continue on uh, and are granted um, and I would also add that we have we just feel really so grateful that we were actually funded this way um, you know neither Lisa, Silly, or I have written a script. We're first-time filmmakers, um, and we have we've been working in mostly in nonfiction, the three of us. Um, and, and we wanted to cast fifty non-actors in our film. Um, we had a pretty yeah, experimental like writing process. <laughs> I mean, everything about this, we embraced the freedom that working with nonprofits provided. And in addition to the Biennale, Cinereach, IFP. Uh, Sundance Institute, Women Make Movies, Rooftop, like every single person who's been a financial supporter of this project is a nonprofit, and that has been incredibly freeing as artists and artists that maybe fall out of the spectrum of uh, traditionally like dollar signs, like point to you, yeah. And that's how these kinds of films get made. Thank God for all of them. And thank God for all of you, all of you who made this really wonderful film. Thank you very much. Thank you. We thank all of you very much. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org slash WRT25. The 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese was famously reported by the New York Times, who alleged that dozens of bystanders sat in their apartments in Queens, ignoring the woman's cries for help. For decades, the incident was cited as evidence of modern American apathy and urban anomie. In recent years, however, the Times coverage was scrutinized for its alleged distortion of the facts in service of a sensationalist agenda. The Witness, a new documentary by James Solomon, follows Kitty's brother Bill as he attempts to sort through the muddled media reports to find the truth about his sister's tragic death. During NYFF, James Solomon, Bill Genovese, and co-producer Melissa Jacobson join us for a Q&A. Let's go to that now.
excuse me. Thank you. If you could turn your attention to the middle of the, of the room, if you would. Um, here again is Jim Solomon. Wow. Um, thank you all for, for, uh, for coming this evening. Um, it is my uh, uh, extraordinary pleasure to uh, introduce a person, two people at first, um, a woman who has been, who, whose um, hand is on every single frame in the film. Uh, she has been on the film from the very beginning for the last 11 years, uh, and uh, she's an extraordinary producer, uh, and her name is Melissa Jacobson. And um, uh, I, I'm not sure he needs any introduction, but uh, if you ever wondered what, how a filmmaking team or why a filmmaking team would spend 11 years on a project, it was to be able to soak up every day and to spend every single moment possible with Bill Genovese. Thank you. Of course, as I said last night, Jim, Jim did not add obsessed and masochistic. <laughs> it seemed to take that. The other thing, I have to thank Jim and Five More Minutes and Melissa and Trish Gavoni because, I mean, when Jim and I first got together and we bumped into each other sort of by happenstance, um, it was an amazing thing to think I could pursue this this process and have people actually pay themselves to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's like you get all these people who are doing all this research and go, well, check this out, check that out, check this out. So it was, it was just, for me, it was a privilege to work with this group, particularly Jim, because um, I think he's as obsessive as I am. But anyway. <laughs> We, we would like to, uh, Bill and I and Melissa would like to just acknowledge a couple other people who are here, um, who, um, and, and in no particular order, but they appear, in, a couple of them appear in the film. Um, a, a person whose uh, work uh, you see in the film as a blogger, a resident of Kew Gardens, um, and a uh, self-proclaimed amateur historian whose um, uh, investigation really uh, pr prompted the New York Times to re- think it's uh, 2004, uh, 1964 account in 2004 on the 40th anniversary. Joe DeMay is here. Where is Joe? <laughs> and uh, one of the first people I met um, long, long time ago in the 19, late 1990s when I first started on this project was this extraordinary man um, and uh, illustrator as well, but a, a, a iconic uh, defense lawyer in Kew Gardens, Queens, who had a shingle on the second floor, um, and uh, named Sidney Sparrow. And Sidney was uh, Winston Mosley's uh, public defender on this uh, in trial. And uh, we are um, lucky enough to have had the extraordinary support from the very beginning on this project 
of his son, Robert Sparrow. He's right there. I also would like to um, introduce the person who shot the entire film from beginning to end, which is a very unusual thing to have. And I think Bill would say that the continuity of a core, we had a core four, um, our own core four. And uh, Trish Cavoni is right behind me. There are three other people I quickly want to acknowledge. Um, she doesn't appear in the film, but she became an incredible friend, particularly to me, but also to the whole film. And she was interviewed multiple times, both on camera and off camera. Um, she's an author who has written a book, which I do recommend, called No One Helped, uh, published by Cornell University Press. Marcy Gallo, where is Marcy? And then, and last but not least, uh, the genesis of this project for me, which I can get into at some point, um, was in collaboration as a screenplay. It was originally going to be a screenplay. And the, uh, my collaborators at the time uh, were uh, two extraordinary um, uh, artists, uh, a seminal documentarian named Joe Berlinger, who is right over there. And uh, as great a human being as he is, playwright, Alfred Urey, who's right over there. I could explain how this um, project went from a screenplay to a documentary, but I just want to say that uh, in public that um, these two gentlemen and a third, Howard Bronstein, were kind enough because we had spent a fair bit of time together developing this project, and then it didn't happen. It was supposed to be for HBO, and it didn't happen. And I went to them in 2000 and three or two and some, around that time and asked for their blessing. Could I make a documentary? Would you guys be? And, and their generosity, there was not the slightest bit of hesitation. And I've always been incredibly grateful to you guys for that. And uh, I think you didn't think it would take 11 years. But, uh, but I do have enormous appreciation and admiration. So thank you, guys. Well, that's true artists and collaboration that you asked, that they gave their blessing, and it all came to what we have tonight. Last night, I thought I asked too many questions in the beginning, so um, I'm going to keep my mouth closed for the moment and turn to all of you if you have any questions um, so that we give everyone a chance to get questions in. Anybody? Because I will ask a question if you don't. Yes. I'm just going to repeat this for everyone. Um, now that the film is finished, have you been able to put anything to rest? Yeah. For Bill? Um, you know, I think it went, it was sort of a trip like this. If this is putting it to rest down here, it was like this. And it really did put it to rest. But my whole process of having to prove that I wouldn't be apathetic, et cetera, everything you saw in the film is really the process of putting it to rest. Oh, you're welcome. I also want to say if you're a history wonk, read Marcy Gallo's book because it 
puts everything about Kitty's story in a tremendous historical context. Uh, it was my personal favorite of the number of books that came out. We anyway. love we love Marcy. Yeah. If you can't tell, we do. And that was an unpaid political announcement. So. Um, yeah. Just a, a quick repeat. It's with all those things of, of who called, who didn't. Um, what is your take on all of this? I guess you're asking, do you believe that they weren't, that they didn't have a record of them, that they did call? Well, the film itself stands for itself, and I think what it does, I know what it does, what we tried to do was present what we found. You come up with your answers. If you had to have one from me, my guess is there were a lot of ear witnesses who who's to say whether they should have called or not, whether they did call or not. We don't know. There's just one thing I would add, because then I think Bill and I went back and forth oh, and yeah. became yin and yang on this. Um, and and sort of, um, we didn't argue, well, we, I guess we argued at times, but what was really worse, and, um, and there were moments, uh, there was one moment for us um, where we, uh, we were sort of, Going back and forth, where we were in apartment 204, which is um, uh, Irene Frost's apartment. And um, I don't know if you've, uh, when you're on a ladder and you look down, the distance that's right under you disappears and you actually become much closer to a spot somehow on the p pitch. And I, I recall the two of us were in that window mm. and it just seemed so close. And I think that was a moment we thought, hmm. Boy, that's that's pretty intimate. So I think we went back and forth. Yeah. As a young attorney, uh, and of all things, when Kitty was arrested and charged with an accommodation gambling charge, she came to my office, and we represented her. So I am undoubtedly the only person alive who had direct personal contact with both Kitty and Winston Mosley. By the way, we pled Kitty to disorderly conduct. She did not end up with a criminal record. She paid a $50 fine, and that was the end of it. And I think your dad told me when, uh, at one point where they were in the court, there were like maybe 10 or 20 other people in the same situation. So the level of contact that he had, because he did represent uh, Mosley too, was really not a conflict because it was just a mass sort of, okay, you get a plea guilty, yeah, we did it. And it was a bunch of people. She was a sweet, beautiful young lady. I think everyone heard that. A sweet, beautiful young lady. Yes. What, for each of you, what is your, your takeaway about Rosenthal? Um, for our family, it was a mixed blessing because my mother, who was, I mean, I can't emphasize enough, totally devastated by this. I mean, I remember the scene where at the gravesite where she was literally trying to crawl in with my sister because, you know, firstborn and all that. And um, so with all the notoriety, because of the 38 witness story, um, my poor mother, we would try to, like, I didn't even start to think about doing anything, although I had a number of opportunities to, to 1992 when my mom passed away. But in the immediate aftermath, we were trying to defend my mother from many articles. She didn't, she didn't need to see this. It was so famous 
people we barely knew were sending her letters with clippings and things like that. I myself personally think it was a morality play that maybe should have come to pass because um, Michael Murphy, who was the police commissioner at the time, talked to Abe and uh, he was saying how little cooperation the police was getting, were getting from the public. Now, one could get into many reasons why that is, you know, police arrogance, police uh, apathy themselves. Some people have come up to me and during this course and said the police get nothing right in their investigations. Other people say that, you know, oh, they're, they're really good. So I, I think, Abe, in my opinion, Abe, and there probably was enough ear witnesses where maybe somebody did something. But if you look at all the details, I think it maybe was the tragic coming together of many things that made it be a tragedy. I, I just, I think one part of your question and, and is addresses, um, is there a value to a story that has a positive impact, even if the story or the narrative is inaccurate? Um, and I think there are some folks in this room who probably can speak more intelligently to this very point. Uh, I think Abe Pressman speaks to it rather intelligently in the film. But I think the premise of your question may be that good came of the story, um, or that that's, uh, and therefore it cancels out the bad. Um, I think Bill has just alluded to, um, I think the truth is paramount. That's personal opinion. And, and I think Michael Daly speaks most eloquently to it. The thing that Kitty Genovese, and I think Michael, Michael Daly is a poet in, in uh, his interview, he's on for a few seconds, but the things he said were just mind-bogglingly uh, eloquent. And he uh, speaks to the thing that Kitty Genovese should be known for is the truth, if she's going to be known. Um, uh, uh, one of the people who was uh, inspired by this story um, is Paul Wolfowitz. And whether you agree or disagree with our invasion of Iraq, he points to this story as forming or shaping his, his opinions about invading Iraq. Chesley Sullenberger, who landed on the Hudson, also points to this story. He was a teenager living in Denison, Texas, and he points to this story as inspiring him. The, the story can, can uh, Curtis Lewa points, uh, lots of people use it as a touchstone for good, for bad, and I don't know whether you can judge good or bad on a, on a narrative. I don't think, I think the truth is the truth and that's what should be paramount. And, and in Bill, and that's what drew us all to Bill, is he is the ultimate, for us, truth seeker. So I would say this, excuse me. Um, were the loaves and fishes story true? What should we get out of that? What's a myth? I mean, people, most, too many people think a myth is a fairy tale. But a myth is a story, a made-up story, perchance, per se, that speaks to a real truth in us psychologically and spiritually. So, like, say again? But not printed in the New York Times. No, just printed in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not arguing... <laughs> Which no. holds more weight? I don't know. Yeah. So the point being that I, I totally agree with Jim about what Mr. Daly said, but you've got to weigh that with 
other things. I think it's an individual take. I think the film presents people with the opportunity to see what we came up with and make their own decisions. So th th this question is, being that a story that is a screenplay for some fiction, how could it have actually have worked as anything else but a documentary? You know, and it's, a, it's a question that comes from uh, Peter Blauner, who is an extraordinarily uh, talented writer and a screenwriter, but a journalist and then became a screenwriter. Um, so it's a really interesting question. It, it, um, um, when Alfred, Joe, and I started to meet the people who had been affected or impacted by this story in the 1990s, I think there was a part of us that thought we couldn't possibly, I, I knew I wasn't talented enough as a writer, and Alfred probably is, to actually give voice to those people who would actually live the story. It was a challenge. And I think um, the ability, in a sense, um, to allow those who had lived it um, was uh, what Bill wanted to do. And um, I know as a screenwriter I could never have accomplished that. But I also could never have accomplished that as a documentarian if it had not been f by following Bill. Because, and I just want to say, the people in the film would have only, mo many of them, would have only talked to Bill. And part of the reason, I think, is twofold. One is because I think some of them, particularly the witnesses, and we know that, Melissa Jacobson, who did an extraordinary job with Bill of finding uh, these people, uh, felt they owed it to him, to talk to him. So that was an interesting. But there's also another element of Bill and his innate humanity that I think um, was stunning to us, arresting, is that in part it, I think, is partly because Bill has experienced at such a young age such trauma that people who were living with trauma or, or, or sadness or sorrow or pain or, were willing to share it with Bill because they felt in Bill they had a kindred spirit. And so people who are not accustomed or at all comfortable talking in front of the camera, think of the age of the majority of people. These people did not grow up with video cameras. And yet they were willing to get on, not only talk about their private lives, but to talk to, on camera. And what also isn't entirely in the film, there were lots of people who started sharing their own trauma. Mike Wallace started talking to Bill about the loss of his teenage son because they thought, I think they felt in Bill, someone who would understand and his extraordinary talents to listen and, as Bill has said, to not judge the t what people were telling him. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't. Uh, when we started this thing, we were writing about a lovely girl who was murdered while 38 people watched it and didn't do anything. And as we spent, was it two or three weeks talking to people, it began to come clear that that wasn't true. And it kind of shot holes in, in the screenplay. And it uh, is a brilliant <coughs> documentary, and thank God. We didn't pursue it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, just to, to, to pick up on what Alfred said and, and Joe, I, I, it didn't take a lot to scratch this story. I mean, Deme Joe DeMay should talk to this. It, it, it didn't, it's not, it, you know, uh, what are those things, those scratch-off things that we do? You know, you just take a coin and you scratch it and then you just sort of, 
it, it's not that difficult. That's what makes it sort of arresting. Um, it, it's not even, it's somewhat logical that it doesn't hold up. 38 people watched for more than a half hour. Uh, it just, it, the geography doesn't make sense. So I think it, it's theater in the round. That's the story, right? That's the story. It's an amphitheater, a crime that occurred in an amphitheater. And I think, Joe, I mean, how hard was it to you, for you to figure out that the story just didn't quite hold up? It wasn't that hard, mainly because I live in Kew Gardens. And in fact, if you took a look at the New York Times story, they had a picture there in which they plotted out how the murder occurred. And it showed very clearly a, a, a line with an arrow, starting at the first attack on Austin Street, then continuing back. So simply looking at the picture, you could tell that 38 people could not have watched for a, 38, for a solid half hour. So from there, it was simply a question of, I went and got the trial transcript and started asking around. And it became evident that while the story was generally true, and I think what Bill found out about, about the police records that a lot of people heard things, there were never at any point 38 people gathered around watching as if in an amphitheater. And I think the, the Herald Tribune once compared it to a Roman Colosseum, where people watched as if they were watching Christians being, being slaughtered in the, uh, the Colosseum. But no, it was not difficult to figure out. Joe, um, you're mentioned as an amateur historian, but what's your profession? Because you are uh, a professional reconstructor of things. Well, my profession is attorney, but please don't hold that against me. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and yes, we do reconstruct, but yes. we reconstruct in our own way, if you understand. Yes. But still, you have some... Um, Experience with dealing with trial, Kate, with trial text. Well, what we have experience with is fact finding. One of the things a lawyer has to do is to find out what happened, because unless he knows what happened, he doesn't know how to defend it on the law. And I have to tell you, on more than one occasion, I was absolutely positively sure I knew what the case was about until I suddenly found out that I didn't. And that, that comes as a shock, and it's very humbling because you, you begin to realize that. You know, you might think you've got it all covered, but there's always the chance you've missed something important. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I know there are more questions. Maybe conversations can be had out there. Are you pointing to somebody? One more quick one. How did all your, how all your work change uh, your thoughts on all of these and how New Yorkers experience these things? Bill, you're first. Thank well, in the Wall Street Journal today, there was a story about a gentleman who was killed, who him and his friend, they, work at, they worked in Brooklyn at some uh, metal fashioning shop, and they noticed three guys, or, or three or four guys, fiddling with three or four different cars, and they confronted them, and one of the, one of the thieves pulled out a gun and shot the guy. There is, I mean, there is a reason for people to be afraid of intervening, but these guys did anyway. And then there's the general, the two, I guess they were military guys uh, in Paris, not in Paris, in France, who intervened there on the train, on the train yeah. Um. So, you know, I mean, it's always an individual choice. When I was in Vietnam, I would see guys who I would consider incredibly brave on one day be just what we called snooping and pooping on other days. 
And then, you know, it, there was, there was, it was not like Rambo, here's the hero and here are the, here are the goats. Life is, doesn't work that way. And so maybe, you know, maybe the whole Kid Genevieve story was a confluence of people all ducking and snooping that day. So. I just say, I just say that the story is about, about what we're able to take yeah. in. And you see a lot of characters throughout people who, are, who have narratives that they're holding to. And I suspect that's possibly what happened that evening, too, that people are holding to what they're able to take in. And the story is what you tell yourself, what you can handle. And um, I think, if anything, that's what I learned from this process about our, our capacities. And as Bill said, it may change on a day. But um, Stephen Mosley, to my mind, who is one of the most heroic figures in this film, but he's holding to a narrative that a seven-year-old boy growing up needs to hold to in order to function. And so he is somebody who has enormous courage, as Bill says, with a narrative that he's shaped in his mind, that whole family is shaped in terms of what the Genovese family he believes to be, and yet he's willing to come and meet with him, but he has crafted this narrative of what his father did. And I think that also pertains to the night and what people in those apartments may or may not have heard or saw was filtered through their own capacity to take in what they possibly could. That's just a, um, I think it's, oh, yes. No, I'm not gonna mention any names, but one of the witnesses in the film, one of the people you interviewed, gave you a story that was diametrically opposed to the one she's told me. <laughs> not surprising. So, on that note. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you, Jim and Melissa and Bill. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.